are still in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think you have a copy of that. No, I don't. This is a little chart that I prepared on Sermon Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and Luke Parallels. Making sure everybody has a copy of this so that uh, you can see what I'm going to do because that's going to be important. You can follow along with this. We have, if you look at the chart, you'll notice this is a, a I've distilled the, the material from Matthew on the big chart here. All the blue stuff and the white stuff and stuff here in the Sermon on the Mount going from Matthew chapter 5 all the way through chapter 7, verse 27. And I've taken the parallels that you find in Luke for the material that is from Q, or assumed to be from Q, and run the parallels over to, just, to d illustrate how Matthew clumps it together, Luke spreads it out. And uh, sort of as an illustration of how Matthew and Luke differently used the same basic material in the common source. We have made our way now all the way down through to the Our Father in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. What comes next, we deal with fasting, treasure, sound eye, God and mammon, anxiety, judging, judging a brother, pearls before pigs, ask, seek, knock, golden rule, two ways, trees and fruit, Lord, Lord, self-deception, and two builders. In Matthew, that's the sequence. You notice the sequence is different in Luke, but there are lots of similarities um, that we will also be looking at. So today we're going to pick up with um, uh, essentially one that has no parallel in Luke. There's no direct parallel. So we're going to start with fasting. You notice if you look across into the Luke from Matthew, where from fasting, you know, go to Our Father and go to, go to the next one down, which is fasting, Luke 6, 16 through 18. You go straight across, there's nothing straight across. So there's nothing directly parallel across in Luke. And there's no line going from there, either up, like it does once, or down to further down in Luke. For this saying, there is no direct parallel, no direct parallel that can be identified as a quote of Q in Luke for what we're getting ready to read. So, take a look, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6.16. This picks up immediately following the Our Father. And you got to remember, we're in a section now where... Jesus is interpreting certain things, giving, prayer, and then specifically within prayer, the, the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. He's going to do the same thing to fasting that he did with giving and with prayer. And whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may be seen not by others, 
but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, as we noticed last time, and this was the case both under giving and under prayer, the ending here in, in our translations, most of us, our translations, simply says, we'll reward you, period. But the King James and the RSV add openly here. Add openly. So, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. It did that under giving, it did that under prayer, and it does it under um, fasting as well. This addition to the text is a later addition to the text. It's not original in the uh, autograph of Matthew's gospel. It is an addition to the text. Yes. Why would they make that kind of an addition? Interesting question. Uh, what kind of a reward do you have? It seems as though the interpreter, the copyist who is making this interpretation and adding, he probably added openly in the margin and then the later copyist came along, saw that, didn't know if it was an omission by mistake and therefore added it into the body text and then the next copyist who saw it didn't know that it was there, that it didn't belong and just copied it as was. Um, it's a textual edition, and why it's, it seems to reflect an interpretation that if you are, when God sees in secret what you do, the rewards you get, others will see. Um, and that may be true. I mean, there's, not, there's nothing that says that's not the case, but that's not what the text says at all. What the text says is simply, the father who sees in secret will reward you. It almost sounds like something is missing because seeing in secret will reward you. You almost want to have reward you somehow. Bonnie, I know what happened. There was a, there was a question mark after openly and it got lost. <laughs> in the margin where he wrote it? Could be openly question mark. It's a question. It was question Possibly. Or it was a simple interpretation he put in the margin openly. That the, that the, the since God sees this in secret and knows that you're doing this and only God knows it, the reward is balancing that out by being openly in public okay, to be I seen by all. That, that the original was Q or what was the original? The original is what we have in the New Testament in Matthew uh, from the first, second, third, fourth centuries AD, long after Q. When Matthew wrote this, that openly wasn't there. And the first several centuries of the transmission of the New Testament, our oldest copies lack openly. Okay. Then at some point, some scribe in about 750 AD was reading this. He said, well, there's really not a balance here. I mean, he sees in secret, the reward should be somehow balanced to the opposite extreme. So you see in secret, you get rewarded openly. Uh-huh, okay, so that's, a, that's an interpretation. Now, that interpretation is allowed, by the way, because he doesn't say the father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. It says we'll reward you. So openly is one of the options. The reward may indeed be visible to other people. And that kind of dichotomy or question is, is inherent in Christianity even today. You know? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. 
Now, the thing I want to point out is just because openly wasn't in the autograph of Matthew's gospel and therefore wasn't in Q, by the way, just because it's not there doesn't mean that a reward couldn't be openly seen by others. It's just that it doesn't have to be. Where did he get? I thought he was. If, is this not from Q, right? Because it wasn't. In, it's the only place it is. And where did it come from? Here's okay. It's only found in Matthew. Normally, right. you identify things as being in Q if you find them in Matthew right. and in Luke, right. like we're going to see next, and like we've seen before. But this is an example of a sayings teaching of Jesus that that resonates with Qishness, so to yeah, speak. It it's very much in line with other kinds of sayings that are definitely from Q. Hence, they resonate with a Jesus character that seems to underlie the Q material and the material that is unique to Luke or unique to Matthew, but contained within the context of the other teachings. This is a good example. We just had the Our Father, which is paralleled in Luke and comes from Q. Before that, we had prayer and giving, of which neither of us has parallel in Luke but stuck right there smack dab in the middle of a section where you've got material straight out of, out of cue. Well, it strikes me that the word openly comes from their understanding of who God is. And in, in, in terms of his interpretation of this? Exactly. When, because God is watching you and only he needs to, no one else has to. And he's, he has the ability to look down upon you and know what's in your heart and in your hands. And then it's coming, and, and so your actions are going up to God. And so because it's going on that path, it doesn't need to be open because it's a pathway to God. But when it's coming from God down to you, he does not have to be secret because he's God. He may be, or he may be open. Now, let's take, excellent, you've directed the attention to where it needs to be, which is to the whole text. What in the text occasions this addition of openly, as it occasioned it under giving, as it occasioned it under prayer, as it occasions it here under fasting? What's very similar? Under giving and under prayer, people were doing, people were giving and people were praying to get the accolades of other people. Oh, look how holy this person is. He's giving of his financial resources to the poor. Look how spiritual this person is. He's praying such long, eloquent prayers. Certainly he must be holy. Look at how spiritual this person is. He or she is fasting. And, and has a spiritual life that is governed by fasting. Oh, they must be special. Well, they've received their reward. That's what Jesus is saying here. Whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites. Oh, I'm starving. <laughs> For they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. They've gotten their reward. Because their fasting was seen in public, because their giving was seen in public, because their praying was seen in public, and the people who saw it said oh, how wonderful they are, they got their reward. They got what they were seeking by doing this stuff for others, for others to see. Not that others saw it, but for others to see. Here, the fasting of the hypocrites is so that someone else will see it and think good of me and I'll get brownie points for it. 
Now, if somebody happens to know or notice that you're fasting, this doesn't apply to you. But if you're doing it for people to see, if you're giving and metaphorically blowing the trumpet <laughs> before yourself, hey, pay attention to me, I'm about to give alms here. Well, you've gotten your reward. This is not between you and God, this is between you and the people that you're trying to impress. That's not what he says here. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face. Don't look dismal. Don't look like you're fasting. Make yourself look so, the, to, so to the point that someone looking at you wouldn't know that you're fasting just by how you appear. Well, the commentary here, uh -huh. which is half the friggin' page, uh -huh. uh, says that the Jews, when they fasted, and I'm, I'm thinking about Ash Wednesday yesterday. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I said that. Uh -huh. Used to put ashes on their forehead when they were fasting. Sackcloth and ashes. They'd put on cl special clothing. They'd put ashes on themselves, and they would fast. They're trying to make atonement or penitence. They're trying to say they're sorry, and a big chunk of doing that was so that other people would see and know it. All right? They're contrite. They'll get forgiven by people. Well, yeah, they'll get forgiven by people. Similarly, <laughs> this wouldn't be necessarily for God. That is an example of what you're talking about there. Listen to what Jesus says. Not only do you put oil on your head and wash your face, you do that so that your fasting may be seen not by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Father who, who sees your innermost nature and being and knows truly why you're fasting, not to impress people, but for a true religious purpose. So how do we get and, from and, ashes to Ash Wednesday? And your Father who sees in secret will reward you, period. Room is left for, the for it to be openly in the original, but it may also be something inner. Just as the reward for giving can be openly or in secret, i.e. external for people to see or more internal, spiritual. And the reward for prayer may be openly for people to see or internally spiritual. So also here, the reward for fasting may be open for people to see. <laughs> He's lost weight. Or internally, <laughs> internally spiritual. So there's, it's the free, by leaving openly out, you actually free the text to have a broader sense of, of a meaning and interpretation. The seventh century copyist who added openly in actually did it a disservice by adding that word in. One of the things that I have noticed though that when God rewards you internally, people can't help but notice because you are changed. So I was wondering what the word reward originally means in the text. In the text, you want to know what the word sure. reward is? Um, verse 18. A reward? Oh, <laughs> Literally. Um, I, mean, yeah. well, what, I wonder what, About that, what that originally meant. The concept is that, that which you receive uh, for almost like for services rendered. So payment, like, grace? Yeah. like a payment. It's more like a payment, less like a grace. That which you have done, you now receive your due re reward, your due payment for it. That you've done something to receive it. It's not something that's freely given. 
you've done something when you're giving to receive the reward. You've done something in your praying to receive the response. You've done something in your fasting to receive the response. So it's not necessarily grace, although it's not that far removed from the concept. It's, it's, there's more to it. You're actually doing something and getting something for it. Yeah, it's a like transaction here. Good works with it is a it, it has within it a degree of good works. Now, now giving and prayer and fasting are also means of grace because the reward you receive is not necessarily commensurate with what you did, but far beyond it. Hence that reward concept being openly or inwardly it is almost irrelevant, as you pointed out. Because even a great reward inwardly has outward manifestations. I mean, the, the reward for fasting is not commensurate with the effort that goes into fasting. It's far beyond it. That's where it becomes grace. It seems to me that the, the emphasis is not on the reward, but it's no. on the behavior. It's beyond the act itself. The reward is the byproduct. But if you're performing the act for a reward, that would devalue the act. <laughs> Precisely. Okay. And that's why it devalues it, but when you're doing it for people to see. Exactly. Okay. For people to see. Questions? Yeah, are you going to skip over the Ash Wednesday or are you going to help me out on that one? What do you want to know? Well, I mean, here's Jesus according to this, and you seem to agree with it. I've preached on Ash Wednesday services in the past, I haven't done it here. In the past, I preached Ash Wednesday services that ideally what we should do is after the Ash Wednesday service, at our first opportunity, we should wash our faces. Okay. That's what Jesus would say. It sounds uh -huh. like. You are doing this internally within the church, within your worship life, and that's appropriate. Why bear it around for the world to see? What's important is what's going on on the inside, being signed with the cross, knowing that you are dust and unto dust you shall return. Hence... The first opportunity, you should wash your face. Get rid of the external ash. What's important is what's happened in here and in your soul. And that's where I have a problem. And why I really like doing Ash Wednesday in the evening on Wednesday instead of in the morning. Because if you do it in the morning, you're tempting people to wear it all day long. Ooh, look at them. They got up this morning and went to Nash Wednesday service. Ooh, ooh, they may be holy. They just, you just violated that right there. Or you may have simply shifted the benefit, whatever that might be, from whatever God is trying to do for you and with you and within you to what other people now think of you. There may be a case that you could make that you're wearing those ashes becomes a witness yeah. to others. And that, therefore, would be contextual. But for most, in most cases, I would not recommend wearing those ashes around. I would recommend the first chance you get, you wash your face. And we could have, on the way out, we could have a you little oil. Do that. You could have that as part of the mm -hmm. you could. ceremony. Well, you that with oil well oil, you use oil to put the ashes on. Uh, but you would, you know, you'd give, you know, the little handy face wipes. Even. Okay. What did Jay Leno learn? Um, like, oh, what was that? Uh, we, uh, Quite a few months ago, where he apologized. He'd made some really snide comment about some woman. And then he said, It wasn't my intention to be disrespectful, but it was the perception of it. 
So it isn't our intention when we are wearing that, but it might be the perception. What is the perception? The Usually point. perception, appearance is more real. It's more rewarding. It's it, it has a greater impact. It it it's more real than real. Certainly more real than intention. Right or wrong, it's a fact. Mm -hmm. um, it's when Jay Leno made that comment about Sarah Palin's daughter. Oh yeah. Oh God, that was and not a nice thing. He was trying to reason. That was that was that was. Oh, it was not Leno. It was. Um, um, the other guy. The, that, yeah, that David David yeah. yeah, and I heard him say on the radio that exact thing. It was not my intention to be offensive, but it was perceived as such, and because it was perceived as such, I was wrong, and I apologize. There you go. And I thought that was well said. That and that actually points the thing. Actually, gets to the point here. <laughs> that is how it is. How the perception on the outside. That determines, unfortunately, the reality. And that's actually the case here. Why are you doing these things? If your intention is to gain outward approval, well, you've gotten your reward. If your intention is to to um, to gain the approval of God, for instance, then it almost doesn't matter what people see. If they happen to know it, notice it. Okay that maybe God's going to use that as a witness. Hence, praying in public. You know, some people refuse to pray in public because in Matthew uh, five through, uh, 6, 5 through 8, it says pray in secret. But that's not what it says. It's, you know, make your prayers between you and God almost as if you were in a closet praying. And then if somebody happens to see you praying, well, that wasn't your intent for praying either. I read something that uh, I hadn't thought of, but um, writers said that Jesus did not really go around <clears throat> deputizing people to, to go out and spread the word. He did that with the disciples toward yeah. the end, you know. But it was not the individual preaching, you know, that was, you know, <clears throat> do this so that people will know the best way to do this or that will see you as a Christian or whatever the thing would be. He was just telling people how to how to behave within the context of being a good a good Jew. Specifically yeah, specifically how you should live your life. It's always about a relation, a life, um, a way of life. Not even so much a religion as it is a way of relating to other people. That was what was most important. Let's keep going. The next we actually have parallel form. Matthew 6, 19 through 21. And before we get there, I want you to find and put a marker or a finger or something. At Luke 12, 33 through 34. And you can follow that on the chart by finding, you know, treasures, 6, 19 through 21. And then follow the line down to 12, 33 through 34. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
Hmm. Now, before we interpret Matthew, let's look at Luke. Sell your possessions, Luke 12, 33, and 34. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 21 in Matthew 6, Luke 12, 34, identical, word for word. Now what came before it is slightly different, but it's the same. And here we have something interesting. Notice there's a parallelism in Matthew. Store up for yourselves treasures, verse 20, uh, excuse me, back up, verse 19. Um, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. There's a parallelism there. A very Hebraic, Jewish, parallel structure. We see it in their poetry, and here we see it here. We've seen it elsewhere in Jesus. We see it again right here, a very Jewish, Hebraic structure. Luke dispenses with it. He doesn't include it. Sell your possessions and give alms, which, by the way, isn't contained in Matthew, and yet is implied. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. I like that. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Clearly, there's, he's drawing from the same source as Matthew's drawing, but he's simplified it, shortened it, tightened it up for a Gentile audience. Matthew cites it with this Hebraicism, this parallel structured Hebraicism. Luke drops the parallel structured Hebraicism to get to the point. Now, often scholars will say Luke preserves a more Q-ish original rendering in many places. Blessed are the poor as opposed to blessed are the poor in spirit as in Matthew. Uh, Yeah, but sometimes as we've already seen, Luke will take a Hebraic structure and dump it in favor of something that is more straightforward to a Gentile audience. Matthew here preserves the more original reading, both in Q and I would say in Jesus. Mm-hmm. The, the more original reading would have this Hebraic structure, this parallelism, which we see repeatedly throughout the Psalms and in the Proverbs, and we've already seen in Jesus and we'll see again. Luke sometimes contains it, but here he's dumped it in favor of straightforward, yes? Well, it seems like there's a pretty unique thought in Luke, you know, about uh-huh. alms and selling your possessions. I mean, that's kind of that's kind of a major you get, idea, you know. And then then he then he I guess I guess he builds on the 
if you if you sold all your possessions, then you don't really need a purse. You don't need an earthly purse. Yeah. You need a purse that yeah. does not wear out. Yeah. A spiritual purse. A heavenly purse. Well, that, that's a pretty elaborate. Yeah, Luke's, Luke's full of taking care of the poor, right? Yes. He's all, all about taking care of the so poor. So is Matthew. And Matthew that, contains the, the, the teaching on giving. Yeah. Don't let your left hand see what your right hand is doing. That's in Matthew's, not in Luke. <laughs> does, does Matthew have this rich man thing in here where you're not going to make it if you're rich, basically, like Luke does? That's not here. We'll, we'll get to it. Trust yeah, me. But, okay. Um, the answer is no. But <laughs> he, has a different, he has a different approach. Okay. Um, but here we have this Hebraic structure that would have, that, that Jews would have heard well, and that was Matthew's audience. A Gentile structure, the Gentiles would hear, and that's his audience, and you say, you identify a, a unique thought. I think it is, to a sin, in a sense. You can draw it from what Matthew says. Let us assume, just for a second, let us assume that Matthew hasn't done anything to massage the text from Q. What Luke had before him was what we see in Matthew. Matthew is read the passage. Okay, well, if you're called to lay up treasures in heaven, what does that tell you to do? Rather than showering them on yourselves and trying to keep them for yourselves, for the thieves to steal, for it to be destroyed by the moths, you know, by the stuff of the earth. How are you laying it up in heaven? How are you... How are you doing the second half here? Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. How do you go about doing that? You do verse 20 from Matthew 6 by doing Luke 12, 33. Hence his interpretation of how to, how to do it results in a straightforward sell your possessions and give alms. I don't think you can also give it to your family. Yeah. Or you, you know, you can who, who, who then it will, will hold on to it and the thieves will steal. <laughs> that's right. You give alms to the people who need it. I agree with Pete. That's very unique, and I don't think Luke is giving you any, any wiggle room. He's telling you what to do. Well, he's telling you straightforward what oh, to he's, do. Yeah, he's, he's, he's interpreting no verse. He's interpreting Matthew 6 20. Yes he, yes, he is. Directly, without uh, apology. He tells you to do this. All right? And it's his interpretation, therefore, of 20 that then governs the rest of it. That's a mandate, though. It's a command. Yes, it is. So it's in the, imper it's in the imperative case. I don't case. see any commands over here in Matthew. And it's, a, it's an elegant uh, yeah. metaphor, whatever you want to call it. You know, you go from giving alms to having a heavenly purse. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Really he does a good job. I'm not saying that he's... I think, it, in fact, I think it's, it reflects his brilliance. Yeah. Yeah. And is it out of character even with what Jesus says and does? No, it's not. Even if Jesus didn't say it quite like this. And he didn't. I don't think. What would Jesus say? <laughs> what would Jesus say? Jesus probably said something more like what we have from Matthew. Because this Matthew reading contains this Hebrewish Hebraic uh, structure and this teaching structure with the parallelism. Luke, and by the way, there is an imperative in Matthew. Do not store up. Yes, not. Store up for yourselves. But it's more, 
it has a it's it's it is ambiguous as to how to go about it. Luke isn't ambiguous. Here's how you go about it. In fact, I could hear the passage. I could hear this passage from Matthew being read, and then Luke, as a preacher, getting up and saying, "This means sell your possessions." <laughs> And I, I, I'm convinced, that this, part of me is convinced that that's actually how this came about. But at the same time, and this is the, the genius of both Luke and of the preaching method, of the prophetic method and the prophetic spirit, i.e. it's a gift of, of God's grace here. The interpretation put into Jesus' lips is not at variance with what Jesus himself says elsewhere or would call us to do. All right. But if, if there's a, a Hebrew stylistic aspect to it, that's more likely to be original. original. Exactly. In this case especially, Luke writing to a Greek audience is applying the Hebraic teaching, which is a little nebulous. The Hebrew audience, the Jewish Christian audience hearing it in Matthew, have no trouble with this, this Hebrew structure. It doesn't need to be interpreted the way Luke interprets it. That's interesting. That's very fascinating. It almost turns on the head the basic academic approach of saying Luke preserves a more primitive version of Q. He sometimes does. He sometimes does not. And it's a case-by-case -case basis upon which you make that determination. This is an example among many where Luke has interpreted a Hebrew-based saying for a Gentile audience in a very innovative way and yet maintains the sense of the original. And look how he ends it. They end it both identically. For where your treasure is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. Same thing ends it. We're going to see this again in just a moment. Any questions? Now notice, Matthew now, the treasures had that parallel. Next one is a sound eye. Luke, Matthew 6, 22 through 23. And its parallel is down here at 11, 34 through 36. 11, 34 through 36. So put a finger at, at Luke 11, 34 through 36, and we'll look at Matthew 6, 22 and 23. And this one catches it by surprise. It's an extremely sophisticated extremely sophisticated statement on Jesus's part. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Before we interpret, let's look at Luke. Your eye is the lamp of your body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if it is not healthy, your body is full of darkness. 
Therefore consider whether the light in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be as full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. Now, it's obvious, this is very close in both, but Luke has expanded it. <laughs> He's interpreted it a little bit. What does it mean? We have an interesting juxtaposition. What is the purpose of an eye? What does an eye do? You see with it. It lets light into you, and you see through it. Now, we've heard earlier up here in Matthew under, if your eye offends you, pluck it out. You know, what's going in, uh, it, it can, that, that actually is a problem. But here we have something different. The eye is doing something different. What's it doing? Oh, it's, it's sort of selectively, I mean, it's, it's selecting what, what you choose to look at, which is what a lamp does. I mean, a lamp only shines light on what you direct it Where you direct it at. Yeah. What else, what, what else does a lamp do? Look at Luke's interpretation at the end. If then your whole body is full of light, with no part of it in darkness, it will be as full of light as when a lamp gives you light with its rays. Back up. The eye is the lamp of the body. This is more than just the literal seeing in, although that's part of the process. It's what you see in the eyes themselves. This is an extremely sophisticated idea, and we all know it's true. You can tell a lot about a person by looking them in the eyes. You can see what they do. Modern psychology has shown us, and it's used by uh, companies when they're developing television commercials and other forms of advertising, that, that you can identify what's important for a person by how their eye moves and, and studies and scans. Well, that's, that's what I was saying. They but you can tell what they identify as important. Yeah, what they're looking at. What they're looking at then tells you a lot about them. Do they look at you? How do they look at you? Do their eyes dart away? Do their eyes focus in? When you talk to them, do they look at other things suddenly? When do they look at other things suddenly? What do they look at suddenly? There's the great example is that's interview technique. Uh -huh. And somebody in here has had really great training in interview techniques recently. <laughs> and he will look you in the eye more than he's ever done for the last two years. Really? And you watch that. I will. I will. You'll pick it up. I will. Okay. Blew me away the first time. Oh, I get it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that but that's the point. It's you can I while you can't tell well you it's debatable. You can't tell the, the good or a bad person. You can interpret a lot about who they are and what they are by what they look at, yeah. by what their eye is doing. Hence, you know, you it does. The person by the company they keep. It's that kind of that's part of it. Mm -hmm. You can tell, and that's where you become the lamp, where the eyes become a lamp to the inner being. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness, i.e., 
if your eye is looking at things that aren't good, you're going to be taking that in. And then what comes out, because you're then going to start looking the same way, looking at the same kinds of things. Look it over at Luke for a slight interpretation. Therefore, consider whether the light in you is not darkness. What have you been looking at? Darkness or light? Hmm. It, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a very a spiritual, it's, it's sort of like just general advice about maybe that's appropriate, but I don't see God in this particular one. The, uh, was he in the other one? Was he in the one about treasures? Treasures was heaven. Well, the darkness is an interpretation. You know, both of them use darkness, talks about it extensively. Talks about health. Both of them talk about health. If your eye is healthy, what's healthy about looking at death and murder? What's healthy about looking at beauty? One is, and I can define beauty in many ways. The beauty of God's creation in a human being. It doesn't need to be pornography. The beauty of God's creation in a sunset. Or if you're constantly going after looking for things that shock and frighten and disgust. I have a very good friend who loves to watch horror films because he likes to be frightened. And I often wonder, I used to wonder about what does that mean about you know lightness or dark inside? And then you confront him with not a made-up horror, but a real one, and he goes to pieces can't deal with it. He hasn't been desensitized. He's made that differentiation between fiction and reality. He likes to be frightened, but then you confront him with something that's truly dark, and he is not desensitized to it at all. He doesn't want to see it. He doesn't want to look at it. That tells me something about him. <laughs> His interior is light. He's got some light going on. There's light in there. He is a thrill out of being frightened. That's a little different than soaking in and consuming gross stuff because they like it. It has become dark inside. There's a big difference. It sounds like you're being kind of tough on the NCIS people and CSI oh. people. Oh, but that's different. That's a little. That's that's a little different. Some of that stuff is based on a real stories. I know. I know. I think you're talking more about like the Saw people. Yeah, I am. I am. That's just that's just gross stuff. That's just gross stuff. But Count Dracula doesn't bother me. <laughs> <laughs> that's the, the kind of monster. Or the Wolfman that you just saw. <laughs> yeah. But that's my. That's, that's all fiction, and and it's a scare tactic. It's different. It's a shock thing. It's not. It's not a gross thing. It, it's not this dark stuff that desensitizes you to the true dark stuff to the point that you like it. That is a spiritual concept. Because what is look at darkness and light are both contained in these passages. In God, God is light. In God, there is no darkness at all. That's that's the kind of idea. That's where God comes into this. 
That's where the spiritual part comes into this. If you're filling yourself up with darkness, it, it suppresses the light. If you're filling yourself up with light, that light will shine out and people will see it. If you fill yourself with darkness, in a weird sense, that darkness will shine out. I know that's ridiculous, that doesn't make sense, but, but it still is, it does, in a sense. This, this strikes me as, as almost verging on, on a Gnostic idea. Okay. I mean, light inside you and the light coming out. That, that... It's like something they couldn't keep out. You know? it's, it is a Gnostic type of concept to the extent that there are elements of that even within Jewish thought. Well, Gnosticism is a Gentile thought structure. Yes, it is in its totality. But there are elements even within the Gnosticism that's true. This is an example of it. The light and the dark. We see it in John's Gospel. We see it in Matthew. We see it in Luke. We see it in Mark. It's present in the very earliest layers of the Hebraic message straight out of Jesus. This is straight out of Q. And it's obvious that whatever they both had, it's very close to either Matthew or Luke, probably closer to Matthew here. Matthew's shorter. Luke's a little more expansive. And, it's, and Luke, where he copies Matthew directly, it's pretty direct. It's pretty direct, and then Luke has interpreted it slightly to help it. Let's see another example of that in the very next one. Matthew 20, uh, 6.24 and Luke 16.13. Just stick your finger at Luke 16.13. This is my favorite one. Luke 6.20, Matthew, excuse me, Matthew 6.24. No one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Luke 16, 13. No slave can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Wait a minute. Let's look at these again parallel. No one can serve two masters, Matthew. Okay, Luke. No slave can serve two masters. Okay, slave. Replace slave with one. No one can serve two masters, all right? For a slave will either hate the one and love the other. For a, That's in Matthew, Luke. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other. Ah, identical. Or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Matthew, Luke. Or be devoted to the one and despise the other. Ah, word for word. You cannot serve God and wealth. You cannot serve God and wealth. They are, with the, addition, with the exception of inserting slave for one at the beginning of Luke, they are identical. A classic case of Q, what's called Q-minimalism, where both Matthew and Luke have essentially quoted it verbatim no a change at all with the exception of 
slave for one, and there's warrant for it. And it could actually be that Luke got it as original, and Matthew changed slave to one. More likely, given the structure of it in Greek, that it originally was no one can serve two masters, no man can serve two masters for a slave, as opposed to what Luke says, which is no slave can serve two masters for a slave. Um, it's better. Luke is better writing. Oh, yeah, it is. That one word, that one word tightens it. But that also tells you that probably the original said, no man can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters. A little looser, a little more oral in structure. So man is the original and, and the... Yeah. PC version is no one. No one. Uh -huh. yeah. Let me double check that. Make, just make sure. 624. Yeah. That's the way they sing it in Godspell. <laughs> what? No man? No man. Yeah. Uh -huh. That's the original. Huh. You know, man can just serve two masters and everybody goes, ooh, 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 why not? That comes right after that nice story, though, about trusted with little and all that crap. All, I mean, all that in good stuff in Luke. In Luke. In Godspell. You fool. It doesn't. I mean, it kind of fits into Luke. You know, if Look, you have yeah. not been trustworthy with somebody else's property, who will give you the property of your own? Yes. Fool. The then, well, no service. That makes sense there. Now, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm trying to back up to Matthew, and it doesn't look like... It doesn't look like his makes is, is take much a look. transition. Let's take a Dark. look at that's this. That's the darkness. That's the lamp thing in Matthew. Let's take a look at the whole sequence now. So turning back, and we're going to only do it in Matthew because that's where it's all together. So Matthew 6.16. Let's read it through as a whole. For whenever you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so as to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where, where, where moth and rust consume, and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, is, light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters. For a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. God and mammon. Interesting. It is like a almost independent little sayings yeah. grouped together. Luke has taken them, spread them out, and inserted them into the text. You can almost see why Luke did it. It's because Q collecting the sayings at this point doesn't really care that they're not connected. Matthew's copying them straight out of Q and leaving them in position. Luke is taking them in and implying them 
into contexts where they make greater sense. You can say that when you go back and look at a little bit more of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, whenever you give alms at the beginning of six, that statement, it does seem to have a coherency with the second statement. Whenever you pray, i.e. you're doing things to be seen, don't do things to be seen by others, do them, do them for God in your relationship with God. That includes praying. That includes fasting. That includes laying up treasures. So there is a connection. That includes what you receive in. Does it lighten you or darken you? Does it prepare you to enter into and live this relationship with God? Or does it insulate you from God? Is what your eye is lamping searching out like a, like a searchlight? Is it, is it receiving in that which is positive and then showing forth that which is positive? Or is it receiving in that which is negative and hence radiating that which is negative which insulates you from God? Uh, if it's doing that, then which master are you serving? You can see Q probably had a reason for grouping these together this way. They may have been preached in completely distributed sections. Got they got collected together by the collector, a Q, because there is an interconnectedness to these. It's not apparent individually, but when you group them together, it's there. Which master are you serving? I mean, if you group them together like that, then instead of having that nice little coherent thing that Luke's got uh -huh. about you know taking somebody's money and taking care of it and all that stuff, you're getting and as a servant, and then you're getting. And this one, if you're making them coherent, then that darkness might be thought to be the money. You can't serve darkness and light. Mm -hmm. Which are you serving? Now, take a look at take a look at that passage again. Serving two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. Is it money that's the root of all evil? No, it's not about it's the desire. It's the love for money. It's it's making money the center making it's the making of money the center of your life. That's the root of evil in that sense, in that teaching. Similar here, who is your master? Is it the attainment of wealth, the pursuit of wealth, serving wealth? There's a wonderful movie. It's a horror film, it's called They Live, where these aliens have come down to Earth and they have taken over the planet and they are disguised and they got machines that make it impossible for normal human beings to see that they are aliens. They look like human beings. And there's a pair of special glasses, polarizing lens glasses, that if you put them on, you can see reality. You can see that actually you're an alien and not a human being. And when you look around, you see that there's subliminal messages behind everything. You see up on a bulletin board uh, this great big uh, uh, sign board it, without the glasses on you see you know go vacation in Bermuda but you put the glasses on and it says obey authority and 
the, the guy, when he first discovers these glasses and discovers that there's all these subliminal messages, he has his glasses on, he looks down at a dollar bill, and he took it off, and it's a dollar bill, and he put it back on, and written across the dollar bill, what it says, this is your God. <laughs> that would be Roddy Piper. That, I want to take that movie clip, just that scene. He's standing out on railroad tracks when this happens. I want to take that and use that in a video sermon someday because that is, that'll preach yards, friends. That'll go mile. Because that, and that comes right out of this. Who is your God? Who do you serve? Who is your master? Now, are you going to say the next line after that? I'm here to kick butt and chew bubblegum, and I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that. Time to kick butt. <laughs> I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> this, this, this is so powerful. The question is not, are you wealthy? The question is, who's your God? Who's your God? What do you serve? Do you serve God or wealth? The acquiring of things or God? That becomes the question. You can't have two masters. You can't have, to, to apply it, you can't have two gods in this sense. So what are you going to have? Matthew reflects, I think, the order and structure of Q in that sense. He has collect, Q collected these sayings. Probably Jesus just preached them dispersed over time. They got collected together in a clump. Possibly because when you do it this way, you create a somewhat coherent message. Matthew's adopted that. Luke prefers to take it as a source and he's distributing these sayings out throughout his gospel into contexts to support the rest of the teaching. In that sense, Luke is far more ingenious. Far more ingenious. That, that gospel of Thomas, I, I've only scanned it, you know. Uh -huh. But it doesn't seem to spend much time ordering them. There's no coherent structure at all. It goes all over the place. Q at least has some structure to it. Even if that structure ends up being artificial, there's a structure to it. But you're inferring that, right? From, yeah. from you infer that based on, well, you infer, you infer that when you assume, first of all, that Matthew was simply copying in the sequence straight out of Q. I don't think it's as simple as that, but it's closer to that than what Luke has done. It's closer to that than what Luke has done. You can say Luke's been more ingenious. Could you also say he's been less original in places? Uh -huh. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. And, and you can say that Matthew has been ingenious and less original in places. They've both been ingenious by how they've taken the material. And they've both, at times, simply taken what they've received and put it down. Um, Luke's actually... In some ways, Luke is, as, certainly as literature goes, it is better literature. I mean, you've noted that already tonight. We've seen it already throughout what we've seen, looked at. Luke is better written material. That's obvious. But that's not always the ground upon which you judge something, especially not like this. 
It all seems like Matthew is the reporter and Luke is the commentator. Commentator. Yeah. yeah. Color man. The color guy. Yeah, in a sense. In a sense, Matt, although Matthew is, is, is doing the same thing. And there are times when Luke is more the reporter and Matthew is giving color or interpretation. But in this, in this, in this sequence here, that's kind of what we've got. If, at least if you limit it to this one. Uh, coming next, we won't do it tonight because we don't have time. But coming next week, we're going to look at anxiety. Oh boy, don't be anxious about this one. Anxiety in 625 through 34, which is paralleled if you run the line down to 12, 22 through 32, which, by the way, Luke puts right before treasures. <laughs> I think that's interesting. Um, anxious about money. So we'll do anxiety. We'll then finish. Um, I don't know if we'll finish it next week, but I'd love to see us finish it next week, which is the Sermon on the Mount out of Matthew by going in chapter 7, judging down through the two builders with their parallels over in Luke where they exist. And for the most part, they exist. Um, once we finished the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to break from this process and do something we haven't done but I've been wanting us to do. And we're going to look at the stuff that's unique to Mark. We've looked at stuff that's unique to Luke. We've looked at stuff that's unique to Matthew tonight. We're going to look at this stuff uh, week after next probably. We'll look at the stuff that is unique to Mark. The green stuff on the board, of which there is very little. But it's there. It's enough for one session. It's actually enough for two, depending on how long we take in conversation. After we finish that, we're going to look at a couple of the parables that are unique to Luke. A couple of the parables, famous ones, that are unique to Matthew. And then we're going to shift our course and look at the uh, Last Supper, the arrest in the garden, the trial, and the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's a lot of material to cover. That's perfect. It's going to be right during and or after Easter. Uh -huh. The timing is going to end out well. Well, we'll, we'll, be at the, we'll be somewhere in the trial, if not during the, in the death, by the time we get to Holy Week. So, you know, it, it may be several more weeks before we end yeah. up with the resurrection, but it'll, it'll be in that basic period. Uh, didn't plan it that way. just kind of worked out that way. And I'm not really skipping much. Because once I've covered the two big parables in Matthew and the two big parables in Luke that are not copied over from one to the other, uh, and yet both come out of queue, once I've done that, we'll have covered the vast majority of the material between the two Gospels. Because by doing the Sermon on the Mount this way, we've, we've sampled pieces of Luke distributed throughout the rest of it, which we'll actually pick up a little bit of again later on. The value would then be, once we finish this whole process, would be to actually read Luke and Matthew holistically, i.e. independently. Just straight through. I don't recommend, we may not do that here. We might do that with Mark just out of curiosity. But it, it would be very useful to do that because you can then kind of knit it all back together. And then you can get a you can grasp the totality of each of these gospels. There is a strong debate. Do you is it do you have a lot of value in reading the gospels the way we've been doing them the last several months? Yeah. 
But there's also great value in allowing each one of these Gospels to speak to you directly, independently, which is how most people read them. listening to a Bible study by Dr. Gregory Neal, Senior Pastor of St. Stephen United Methodist Church and Rector of Grace Incarnate Ministries. Copyright 2010 by Dr. Gregory S. Neal. All rights reserved. For more information or to listen to other seminars, Bible studies, or sermons by Dr. Gregory Neal, visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. You are also invited to visit us in person at St. Stephen United Methodist Church, 2520 Oates Drive, Mesquite, Texas, 75150. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.